Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. We're on the front lines with New London Police as we follow an officer on their shift to see what today's police have to do on a day-to-day basis. And it's much more than you think. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Law enforcement in this country gets mixed reviews from people depending on where you live in the nation and the colour of your skin. Like any organisation, there are good and bad police officers and in this digital age we live in, we have seen more and more of the bad that happens. From police brutality to high-profile cases such as the police killing of George Floyd that sparked outrage across the country and the world. But against this seemingly constant media spotlight of negativity, there are overwhelmingly many more good police officers than bad, doing their job to serve and protect their communities every day, and their stories go untold. If you are a police officer or know someone in law enforcement, then what you're about to hear won't come as a surprise to you. But if, like many people out there, you don't have a connection with law enforcement, hopefully this ride-along interview will help provide more context about the job these men and women do. Connecticut East this week went on the front lines with the new London Police Department and one of their patrol officers for an entire shift to see exactly what they deal with day in and day out. Here's my interview with New London Police Officer Ryan Socio. You've started your shift. I mean, is it very different every day? I mean, can you give us a sense of you're on the second shift, which is 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Give us a sense of what that's what that would involve. So, second shift or afternoons, it's the more busier of the three. That's why we have a, a few more officers assigned to it. We actually have the probably the younger officers are all on this shift. Just because there's more activity, there's more domestics, there's more traffic, there's more accidents. You know, especially on weekends, there's more, you know, more people drinking, more DUIs. So it's there's there's more activity generally. Our call volume's higher than the other shifts, so no shortage of activity really. Just explain your sort of typical work day. I mean, you. You do what? How many days on? You know, just just talk us through that so people can understand how that works as well. Sure. So we do a, a five-two-five-three schedule. We work five days, we're off for two. Then we work five days and we're off for three. Most of us <laughs> rarely have those all of those days off. Most of us work overtime because there's there's tons of you know road construction details. There's special duty assignments. There's a lot of especially now. There's a lot of shift vacancies because we're we're so short so you know we're trying to cover every area on the street but you know people either call out sick or they're trying to take vacation or or it's their day off and we're just short we just had a couple retirements we have people who are out injured so it's 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 hard to 
you know, when, when people say that we have close to 70 cops, we don't really have, you know, on the street close to 70 cops. We only have, you know, on a normal day, it's, it's five officers and a supervisor on the street. And people don't, people don't recognize that, you know, they, they, they think that we're all working at the same time. But in actuality, there's really only five of us for a, a city that's relatively needy for police services, more so than almost anywhere else in the region, given the size, you know, and the density. And then how do you recalibrate? You were saying about, you know, how many days you work on and how many days you work off. And, of course, you do this 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. So, of course, not your standard 9 to 5. Talk to us how you recalibrate when you're actually not working. When I get home and I, I, go, right, I go right to sleep, I pass right out. Actually, I, you know, with my hour commute, it's actually kind of nice because, you know, you get to decompress for an hour, kind of get to relax, you know, so you don't, you know, take work home with you pretty much. And that's... That's kind of how I've had a, a pretty successful relationship for the last four years. Is you try not to bring work home with you, or you know, burden you know the, your your partner with you know the stress of this job. You know, I, I share little bits and pieces, but I you know I, I don't want him to worry, and I try not to try not to make him afraid. You know, especially now given everything. How difficult is that? Because it is a high pressure job that you do get up in the morning you know and do this incredible job i mean so how what what does it take out of you do you feel so you know i doing this for almost almost 11 years now you see the news and you open your phone and you, you know you, you see what's going on out there but i tell you know i'm a field training officer and when i teach recruits either at the academy or on the street i, I always tell them to try not to get wrapped up in the job you know it's very easy to only associate with police or only go out, you know, only have police friends because, oh, they, they understand me, you know. But I say have those friendships outside of work, develop those relationships, and keep yourself grounded. You know, that's, that's the only way to, to, to do it. And, you know, you, you see the news, you understand it's dangerous, but you can only control what you can control. You know, you, you rely on your training, you maintain your awareness, and, you know, you're comfortable in your skills. And that's, that's pretty much how you, you kind of have to take it day by day, you know. So what made you want to become a police officer? Like you said, it's almost 11 years now that you've been doing this. Well, my mother was a prosecutor for almost 30 years. So kind of growing up, I, I, you know, I'd go to work with her occasionally. I did mock trial, the whole thing. Her second husband was a state trooper. You know, I, I kind of, you know, I remember going to holidays at the barracks and stuff, going to Thanksgiving. And, you know, I went, I went to undergrad in dc for politics and you know i loved it i worked on capitol hill and, and i thought that's what i wanted to do and i kind of got fed up with it you know tired with a with the you know gridlock and inability to compromise and i was like you know what i can have a more impact kind of on the ground operationally doing something like this you know so I, I graduated in May of 2011, and in June of 2011, I was in the police academy. And the rest is kind of history. I mean, you're a young officer. I mean, I think you've only just turned 30, so you're still incredibly young yourself. So when you started being a police officer, did you feel it made you grow up really quickly? Well, thank you. I'll be actually be 32 next week. <laughs> but, but yeah, looking back on it, I had no business being a police officer at 21 years old. <laughs> you know, I can I can look back on it now and say I didn't really I didn't grasp the magnitude of the job back then, you know, and, and the responsibility I had. 
So it's it's a lot even for somebody in their early 20s. You know, it, it does force you to mature. You know, you obviously, you know, outside of the military, you know, you see the ugly side of humanity, you know, just about every day. And it can, it can cause you to be cynical and kind of jaded, and, and that's unfortunately where a lot of the cops nowadays find themselves in. But you have to understand that, you know, these are people, and they're not, it's not us versus them, and that's, we're seeing that, it's, it's kind of a shift now that we're seeing that. The, you know, they call it the warrior versus guardian mentality. It used to be, you know, we're at war with crime and criminals, and, and you know, we have to, you know, war on drugs and everything, but, but now we're starting to see a slow, albeit it, progress, but we're seeing a slow transition to more of a guardian mentality where we're protectors and not warriors, you know, if that makes any sense. That we have an obligation to, you know, the people in our community to actually, you know, help them and serve them, you know. Obviously we all watch television, we all, you know, use social media, you know, police officers included. How would you say your job has changed in the 10 years that you've been doing it? Even in just a decade, it's, it's, it's changed a lot. I can see the, you know, not from everyone, but the level of defiance, the level of disrespect that, that we, you know, that we see, you know, the amount of people that just don't comply with our, you know, requests or our demands, or, or they just, I, I've seen that increase over time. You know, it's gotten a little harder, but we also have to evolve as well. And, you know, obviously more people have phones and, and cameras and more people record us now than ever. So it, it forces us to be on our A-game too. And obviously we're recording now. We're recording everything. And, and I think that's, that's forced us to, to improve and up our game, which is, which is definitely not something that we had, you know, ten, just 10 years ago. Another thing that has changed a lot in 10 years is that we are asked to do more and more um, and fill the voids often left by society, whether it's parental voids or employment or, you know, you know mental health especially, that we are asked to, to be a problem solver when we're often not giving the, we're not given the training and, and tools to solve those problems you know we can put band-aids on them in the short term but mental health is a perfect example you know we're not social workers we're not clinicians and our mental health apparatus that we have here is is under equipped to handle a lot of the psych you know psych calls that we go on all we can do we have two options pretty much we can take you to jail if you made a commit a crime or if you're in crisis we take you to the hospital and, um, you know, L&M is, is oftentimes overloaded with the volume of patients that they see. And, you know, you kind of feel bad for the, for the person in crisis because they're not really being served at all. And especially since, you know, deinstitutionalization, they closed down most of the state hospitals, there are a lot of people who are severely mentally ill in this region and have no business being on the street. And, and need need help that they're not getting in the community. Um, I understand, actually, from a recent uh, press event 
that New London PD, 40% actually of your calls, I'm told, are to do with mental health issues, which is huge. I'd say that's pretty accurate. I mean, you, you look at the root cause of most of them, whether it be, for example, people committing larcenies because they have a substance abuse disorder. I mean, you, you look down at the root of most of these calls, and a lot of them are mentally ill individuals or people in crisis, and they're, they're driven to, you know, commit crimes or, or you know, be a nuisance. Um, you know, most of our homeless population is mentally ill, and like I said, it, it forces us into a position where we have to we have to do something you know and and luckily we have most of our officers are CIT trained so we're we're trained to to handle people in crisis and kind of be able to you know either talk them down from you know uh, you know their behavior or get them into some sort of treatment I know we're still en route to this particular call, and obviously you've got some information. It's it's being displayed, obviously, on the onboard computer here in the uh, in the police cruiser. It, in your mind already, are you formulating a plan as to you know how you know based on your training, etc., you know how you're going to approach this particular call? So any good any good police officer, you know, when we're we're given very little information when dispatch sends us somewhere. Uh, it's often wrong. It's often, you know, incorrect or missing a lot of context. So all we know is right now there's a person possibly in mental health crisis that we have to now interact with, um, that he was obviously unfit for the psychiatrist's office. So now we have to somehow um, take some sort of action. So we have a, a vague description of the person where they might be, uh, but that's pretty much it. We don't know if they have any weapons. We don't know if they're intoxicated. We don't know, you know, there's a lot we don't know. So you always try and formulate a plan whenever you're showing up, you know, for worst case scenario. But a lot of the times, you know, you're missing a lot of information or things change drastically. And, and again, I'm guessing, I mean, the points you've just made, this isn't necessarily always dispatcher's fault. It's just based on, obviously, you know, information that they all have or haven't been given in the first instance because people don't always give everything that, you know, is necessary over to the police, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, as well. It's, uh, it's classic telephone <laughs> in the most literal sense because you have a, a caller who, if it's a third party or a witness, sometimes they are... You know, they're excited. You know, if you, if you just view, you know, you just observe a crime or something, you're, you know, you're, your adrenaline's going to be amped up. So you're, you're calling the police and our dispatchers, they're great. They're, they're trained, but, you know, they have to translate that, that person, you know, into information that we can use. We've located the individual and... You said earlier that there was a, a warrant out for his arrest, a colleague and, uh, of yours. The man's now been put into another cruiser. Who now processes the, the paperwork for that? Is that something that you have to do as part of the team that arrested him, or how does that work? So how it goes down, so there's, there's six of us working right now. The city is divided into five sectors. We have an extra car. We're fortunate enough tonight. So... Because the incident started in Shaw's Cove, which is part of Sector 3, the Sector 3 officer would handle that. 
and that's Officer Caramonte. So that that would be, so that would be her arrest. She brings him down to booking, and we have a post one desk officer working all the time that they handle prisoners and they handle walk-ins. So the post one officer will take their photo, do the booking paperwork, and the fingerprinting and all that stuff. So we we have. We just do the, the incident report. The arresting officer will, will take them into booking. We'll do some minimal paperwork and then finish the uh, arrest report before the end of shift. But So as you can imagine, if we have a few arrests, you know, if each officer has a few arrests in a shift, some other calls that require reports or investigations, there aren't actually five cops on the street. You know, there, there might be two or three writing, you know, typing reports in the station. There might be only two out on the street. So that's that's kind of the, you know, the, the risk you take is... If we have a couple on a call or a couple tied up in the station, that you know, there, there might quite possibly be nobody out on the street. So, and when you say obviously doing the paperwork, I mean, is that something that you would be able to do during a shift, or would you, you know, at the end of your shift, are you then expected to complete paperwork if that's obviously not done? Yeah. So, like I said, any any arrests. The report has to be done before the end of shift or anything uh, that's a major incident that the administration will want to be aware of. So it, it's quite often that I'm typing a report during my lunch um, or I get called away during my lunch to go to another call where I get called. You know, I'm on reports. I put myself out on the station typing and then I get called away for something else that happens in my area. So it's you do it when you can. You know, it's it's we don't we don't have a set lunch where nobody can bother us where we're we're on call. So it's, um, you know, they, they don't care if you're eating, they don't care if you're using the bathroom. You, if, if there's something like it's going on, you better go. Yeah. And I noticed that uh, when we did the uh, when we did the stop, uh, and you were obviously dealing with the gentleman, um, how did how did he? seen because sat from inside the cruiser uh, looking out uh, you were very calm and he appeared to be calm I mean he certainly wasn't waving his arms or shouting I mean was it quite a cordial conversation that you were having with him did he understand why he was he was being you know spoken to by you so that's yeah he, he did appear calm and, that, and that's interesting that that's that's usually the dynamic with any police interaction is it takes two right to to see how that interaction is going to go i read their body language their their you know their indicators if they're agitated or they're um you know balling up their fists for instance or they're looking around for an escape route you you kind of you know doing this for so long you kind of are able to read you know their body language and kind of tell where they where they are mentally physically um you know, if somebody's blading their stance, if they're they're kind of looking around, you know, or making any furtive gestures, you know, at their pockets, it kind of raises your your attention a little bit. You know, hey, maybe I should pay attention to that. Or, or <laughs> people will do it unknowingly. That, hey, do you have anything on you I need to know about? And they will pat their pocket oftentimes and say, no, I have nothing. And then, but they're telling you essentially that there's something in their pocket, <laughs> you know, involuntarily. So with any police interaction, you have to, you know, if, if they are calm, if they're respectful, if they're cordial, if, if um, y- y- we have to either increase or decrease, you know, de-escalate or elevate our response based on how the subject is portraying themselves. So. 
And would you say that's something that comes with experience? I mean, because as much as you're trained to, to deal with these things, I mean, I'm guessing it's, it is an experience must help as well. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, when, when you're exposed to more stress over time or more, more situations or more incidents, you have that kind of Rolodex in your mind that, hey, I've been through this before. Or it's not as stressful or it's not as, you know, not as, as taxing on you. So, you know, like I said, you, you play it through your head before you get there, you know, and, and having, you know, gone through that situation before or a situation like it, you kind of feel a little more comfortable. We, you know, we, we talked about the incident where the officer mistook her, her taser for a firearm and, and fatally wounded that man. I forget where it was. But that's a classic case of either insufficient training or you have an officer who... You know, there are a lot of departments where they don't, they're not experienced in those stressful situations. They don't encounter them very often. So you're, you're you know, when, when, you, when you're not in those situations often, there's a, a tendency where you can kind of let your either emotions or, or your stress kind of get the better of you and you react inappropriately. So I guess that's a benefit for us is that we are constantly, you know, we're busier, we're, we're exposed to you know everything you see on tv so we're we're kind of we have we have those calluses really almost we saw a few regulars tonight obviously for you does it does it ever get to you or do you ever how does it make you feel when you see some of this slight repetition happen because clearly the police can't solve the problem but you're asked to deal with it so how does that how does that make you feel Sure. No, I mean, I'd say that we routinely deal with maybe 10 to 15% of the people 80% of the time. You know, we do have our regulars that you can say that the system doesn't serve them, either the judicial system or the you know health system. I mean, you've seen that much of the common denominators revolve around mental health and drugs and alcohol. And that's you know, the, the genesis for most of the problems that we have to, to deal with. And, you know, we can't arrest our way out of a substance abuse issue or out of a mental health issue. And, you know, when people say that they want to defund the police, I I think that we should, I'm, I'm more inclined to the reallocation or giving us the tools and resources to properly help these people. You know, let us hire social workers, create a better access for mental health for these folks. Um, if, if you really want us to be able to make a difference for these people, that's that's what's needed. You know, a, a better access to mental health care, better substance abuse uh, treatment for folks, because that's you know, that's the genesis for most of our problems, you know, and on top of the bigger social issues, you know, like joblessness or education. So those are other kind of big picture social issues that we see the end result of day after day. And yeah, it, it frustrates you when you see the same people time after time, when you arrest the same people day after day or they're causing an issue, you know, and, and you know, it... it, it you kind of feel helpless. You kind of feel frustrated. You wish you could do more. You know, when, when you 
commit somebody to the hospital like you saw tonight and you deal with them day after day and they're still kind of stuck in that in that rut you know there's there's very little that we can do to help them you know and it, and it it does get to you final question to you and thank you obviously for allowing me to come along with you you know to experience what many people really don't know or understand at all would you say that more people need to walk in your shoes as it were and then perhaps they would think twice before they start making comments about defunding police and law enforcement in this country yeah i i I think so Uh, i mean we welcome people who want to come along with us you know the the point that i just wanted to get across was that we in law enforcement we as cops we are human too you know we wear a, a uniform you know we have to portray a certain image but we are human beings with our own frailties our own insecurities our own fears we're not robots so you know we have issues with our kids we have sick parents we have stressors in our lives we have financial difficulties so we have all the same stresses that everybody else has on top of the burden of everybody else's stresses that we have to deal with day in and day out. So, you know, that's all we want people to remember is that we are humans too. You know, we take a lot of abuse, and that, but that's part of the job. But we just ask that people remember that we're just like them, only we have, you know, an incredible job to do. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov Lyme. Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. In the Connecticut Examiner this week, in the wake of the federal government's new requirements around COVID-19 vaccination and health and safety protocols in the workplace, Connecticut's unions are saying that any potential state mandates should be worked out at the bargaining table. Recently, the Federal Department of Veterans Affairs announced that it would mandate COVID-19 vaccinations for its 115,000 healthcare workers, and President Biden issued regulations that will require federal workers either to show proof of vaccination or to follow regulations that include required masking, distancing and weekly testing. The Defence Department is also considering adding the COVID-19 shot to the list of mandatory vaccinations for military personnel. In the day this week, State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Commissioner Katie Dykes recently issued a decision that clears one of the final hurdles for the $235.5 million redevelopment of State Pier in New London. Dykes approved the application by the Connecticut Port Authority for permits that will allow dredging, use of dredge material to fill between State Pier and the Vermont Central Railroad Pier to create a central wharf and other in-water works such as bulkhead construction. 
In the Norwich Bulletin this week, as Norwich officials approach the issue of racism and the effect on city services, a model may already exist right within the city's borders. During a recent meeting, the City Council voted unanimously on a resolution to recognise racism as a public health crisis. Among the measures in the resolution is the creation of a health equity commission to help eliminate barriers to healthcare and other opportunities in the city. However, the Board of Education has already had its equity committee for some time. In the Middletown Press this week, police say they busted an indoor marijuana and hallucinogenic mushroom cultivation operation recently in Haddam when executing a search warrant in the Higginham section of town. State police troopers from the Haddam Resident Troopers Office, working in conjunction with state police detectives from the statewide narcotics trafficking task force, concluded a lengthy narcotics investigation in Higginham. A narcotics search warrant was executed at 34 Ponset Road, where troopers found what they describe as an extensive outdoor and indoor marijuana and hallucinogenic mushroom cultivation operation. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.